0: Hey, it's Mark. Whether you were among those in San Francisco for the JP Morgan Healthcare Conference and associated events last week, or one of the many thousands more who converged on Las Vegas for the annual Consumer Electronics Show, which took place at the same time, you no doubt heard a central theme. Indeed, artificial intelligence is one topic you can't go to many places without hearing about. Touted by many pharma CEOs during investor presentations as a productivity boost for drug development, AI likewise was shoehorned into many of the new products on display during CES, everything from AI-infused shoelaces to automobiles. And it will continue to be a fixture of dialogue in Switzerland this week during the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. As Robert Garrett, CEO of Hackensack Meridian Health and Chair of the Healthcare Governance Community at Davos tells Jack O'Brien, he's convening a group of health ministers from the U.S. and Europe, as well as the head of the World Health Organization, to meet during the forum. The group is charged with coming up with specifics around the potential for AI in such priority areas as access to healthcare, health equity, the effect of climate change, as well as value-based care. The governors will discuss what AI guardrails need to be put in place and what actions need to be taken. This week on the podcast, AI's Pitfalls and Potential gets world health leaders talking. And Lecce is here with a health policy update.
1: Hey, Mark. Today I'll discuss former Roivant Sciences CEO Vivek Ramaswamy officially dropping out of the presidential race and take a look back on his campaign.
2: And, Jack, what's trending in healthcare this week? This week, we're talking about Christina Applegate's moving appearance at the Emmys amid her MS treatment, TikTok's look maxing trends, and Michael Strahan's daughter's YouTube series documenting her brain cancer battle.
0: I'm Mark Iskowitz, Editor-at-Large, and welcome to the MMM Podcast, medical marketing media's show about healthcare marketing writ large.
2: Bob, it's wonderful to have you on the show here. For those in our audience that may not be familiar, you and I spoke four years ago when I was at another publication before you were going to that year's World Economic Forum. And we're going to get
3: into all of that and everything that's going on with your organization. But I want to how- say we both of us haven't aged at all in those four years. Exactly. Right? <laughs> I just kind of want to see how you've been. Yeah. What's going on? It's been great. You know, it's been busy. As you might imagine, we had a little challenging time during uh, COVID uh, in terms of the healthcare system. But, you know, I always give it a shout out to our uh, frontline uh, team members, they did an amazing job. The doctors, the nurses, the whole team. Because so we got really swamped with COVID patients uh, early on in New Jersey, in northern New Jersey in particular, and uh, everybody stepped up and, and did an amazing uh, job. So that was kind of crazy. But you know, coming out of um, the worst of the pandemic, things have stabilized. But you know, it's a, it's a challenging time for for healthcare organizations coming out of uh, coming out of COVID.
2: And I'm gonna put on my my previous hat where I was covering hospitals and health systems just for a second here because we're at the emergency phase and there's no longer all the mask mandates and, right. and vaccine requirements, and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, we're sitting here in early January in New York. Cases are rising in they certain are. parts of the country, not to the same extent we've seen in previous years. What are some of those kind of like lingering lessons that come through from dealing with the pandemic? Because I imagine it's something where you're like, it's not the priority it was years ago, but it's certainly not out of mind.
3: It's not out of mind at all. Uh, you know, as we speak today, there's still about 350 patients that are hospitalized throughout Hackensack Meridian Health with COVID. Uh, so that means that they're pretty pretty sick if they've uh, they're they're within that hospital setting. There's still some uh, mask mandates for uh, for visitors, uh, for patients. Uh, when we reach a certain threshold where COVID has become more prevalent in the community, so we're still dealing with that. You know, I think in terms of lessons uh, learned, we we learned a lot about um, how to really harness supplies to to be sure that we had adequate PPE. We there were a lot of lessons around communication. And making sure that communication was frequent, was transparent, that our caregivers got the latest information. And, you know, we still send out weekly updates to our, our team members. Now, it's used to be just about COVID. Now, COVID's a, a piece of this weekly newsletter. But our team members, 36,000 of them at, at Hackensack Meridian Health, still hear about COVID. We give them the trends so they know the health system, how many patients are hospitalized, how many team members are out of work as a result of uh, COVID. And that's been the big focus is, is really out of work because there's still five to seven days when somebody gets COVID that they can't return to work. So that puts a strain, of course, on the entire system.
2: It's so interesting to hear you talk about communications. Obviously, our audience are primarily medical marketers. And granted that they typically deal with pharma and biotech brands, hospitals and health systems haven't been left out of what we saw during COVID, where was this proliferation of misinformation, mistrust with institutions. I'm curious how that has affected your organization, where it's people that maybe four years ago and we had our initial conversation say, oh, no, I trust my doctor. I trust the information I'm getting here. And now it's like, oh, no, I don't. Or I heard this on social media or I have this mistrust. How have you and your organization been trying to navigate
3: that? Yeah, that's been that's a great question. That's been difficult to navigate because so many um, health care consumers, particularly younger ones, are getting their information through social media. So, uh, you know, we try to put out the latest information. We try to get our clinical leaders out there amongst the, uh, the public. Um, also, you know, uh, to you know, of interest to to uh, your listeners, the ar- artificial intelligence has also helped us put messaging out there, and patient education is a big uh, piece of what we're doing with uh, with artificial intelligence. But you're right; I mean, the trust issue is um, significant. The good news for healthcare providers, I think, is that doctors and nurses are still amongst the most trusted professions in the U.S. when you look at all the polling amongst uh, consumers. So we try to leverage that and uh, make sure we put them front and center.
2: And before we get on to the World Economic Forum, and I have a lot of questions about you going over to Switzerland, everything that you have on the agenda there, I do want to ask about the changes that you've seen in your organization. Any organization worth its salt, especially in healthcare, is not going to just stay put. They're going to develop. They're going to bring on new services, new Mm -hmm. parts of the organization. How has Hackensack changed since we last had our conversation four years ago?
3: Yeah, Hackensack's changed uh, a lot in those uh, those four years. So, You know, COVID kind of taught us some uh, lessons. As an example, um, patients want to either receive their health care as much as possible closer to home or actually within their home so, as an example, in these last four years, the Hospital at Home program has really uh, blossomed um, at Hackensack Meridian. We've uh, partnered with a company called uh, Medically Home, and uh, we've had pilots at our academic medical centers, and now we're rolling out this partnership uh, throughout Hackensack Meridian. So, more and more patients will actually receive hospital level care at home. Our ambulatory care network, um, again, with the theme of closer to home, our ambulatory care network has really increased by leaps and bounds. So that's physicians' offices, that's urgent care centers, surgery centers, imaging centers. Uh, We've seen an incredible Proliferation. I mean, we have more shovels in the ground now than than ever before. Now, having said all that, um, there's still a lot of investment in the hospitals. You know, hospitals are still going to be needed, particularly for the more complex kinds of cases. So, um, at Hackensack University Medical Center, our flagship hospital, we uh, made a major investment and we opened a new patient care tower with uh, new state-of-the-art operating rooms, uh, critical care beds, uh, private rooms. We're making major investments in our other um, academic centers as well, new emergency departments at our community hospitals. And our. Um, I think when we spoke last, our medical school was just getting underway. And uh, that's been a real success story. So now we're in our, I think, fifth year or sixth year and uh, we seeded a class this year of 167 wow. medical students, which has been uh, phenomenal, out of an applicant pool of about 8,000. So uh, we're, doing, um, we're doing okay. It's obviously been a pretty, pretty good success. What I'm proud of there is not just that it's the first new private medical school in New Jersey in 60 years, but actually the innovation that's going on um, with the curriculum. So there's been a real big emphasis on prevention, um, teaming up. Medical students with um, families and underserved communities, following them for their three or four years uh, while they're uh, they're receiving their medical education, and uh, really really understanding about some of the health healthcare disparities that exist and and some of the issues around health equity. So really focused on um, on being innovative. When you start in medical school, you get that luxury of kind of starting from scratch. You got that clean whiteboard. Uh, as opposed to some established medical schools, and you know it's hard to kind of turn that um that big ship around, right? Mm-hmm. yeah.
2: And I am really kind of curious, too, because you talk about, I remember at the start of the COVID-19 pandemic and talking to hospital leaders and they were like, you know, it was at that point where it's like 80, 90% of care was all on telehealth because you were able to go for elective procedures and everything was over the internet. And obviously we've seen that kind of come back, not to the levels it was pre-pandemic, but like certainly more people use telehealth. But there was this kind of idea where it's like, oh, of all these investments in brick and mortar just gone by the wayside, were we too short-sighted? But you're talking about, you know, putting shovels in the ground. I think there are a lot of other hospital system's doing a similar thing. It's like, yeah. no,
3: we have to kind of balance those two ideas. Yeah. A lot of the predictions early on in COVID didn't turn out, right? As an yeah. example, uh, people weren't going to shake hands anymore, right? Yeah. yeah.
2: The elbow thing <laughs> that didn't, didn't work out. That didn't work out so well, the elbow <laughs> thing.
3: Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, there's, still gonna, there's obviously still going to be investment in brick and mortar. And I think, you know, in the height of COVID, probably there was that talk that there wouldn't be. But certainly telehealth, you know, uh, the investments continue there. I mean, we're expanding our telehealth portfolio. And particularly since Hackensack Meridian has become a leading provider for uh, behavioral health services, for mental health services, um, many, uh, you know, especially on the outpatient side with the shortage of psychiatrists, a lot of those visits are uh, via telehealth. And we're finding, you know, good acceptance, be, probably because of the pandemic uh, of all age groups um, using telehealth. That was the, probably the biggest surprise is particularly the the baby boomers, you know, wh- were they going to be receptive to it? Um, and uh, surprisingly so, they have been. Yeah, there was this whole idea where it's
2: like, Oh, older people aren't gonna wanna do it. It's like right. no, like anybody as long as they have the access yeah. to it, they're probably gonna get it actually a shot.
3: they they love it. I mean, if you look at the the surveys, you know, once they once they get the hang of it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they use it regularly. They, they love it. I mean, why not? It's a great convenience. Absolutely.
2: Well, I appreciate you indulging me on my provider organization. Uh, Absolutely. I Peter. could talk about that all day. <laughs> I know you could, but I, we want to talk about, obviously, where you're going to next week, going right. to Davos and going to the World Economic Forum. Over the summer, you had a new appointment as it relates to the World Economic Forum. Can you fill our audience in on what that is and what that role
3: entails? Yeah, so um, I've been appointed as the chair of the uh, the healthcare governance uh, com- community out at uh, at Davos and um, it's a real honor. I mean, I've been going to Davos to the World Economic Forum over the past several years, but not in this uh, leadership role. So the You know, in terms of this leadership role, my my major responsibility is to help define the priority in terms of what we're going to talk about at Davos and what, you know, actions we're going to uh, take. So, um, the first thing we did is we put together a steering committee of uh, colleagues out there from the provider side, as well as uh, pharmaceutical and and device side, and uh, got together and decided, you know, what the priorities uh, were going to be. Now, over the past several years, the healthcare community priorities and included access to healthcare, particularly amongst um, underserved uh, nations, which, you know, were challenged in terms of access to healthcare. Health equity was another major priority as we kind of were able to see some of the disparities uh, between, you know, um, the developed nations and underserved nations. I mean, just one statistic that I'll throw out there is there's a, you know, 30-year difference in um, in life expectancy, you mm. know, I mean, really dramatic uh, underserved versus uh Versus developed countries, so that that was uh, another area, another uh, focused area in the World Economic Forum for healthcare was the effect that climate change has on on one's health and and the healthcare system. And then the um, the fourth area was about value based care, and w- how I would define that would be you know en- enhancing the quality of care, enhancing quality and safety outcomes while providing value to the system, in a you know in a in a cost effective economical way to make healthcare more affordable to, uh, to those around the globe as well. So when we looked at all four of those areas, uh, we came up with the, um, the idea that artificial intelligence really is going to impact all four. Mm-hmm. So we thought that should be the priority for 2024. And um, we ran that by the steering committee. We talked about it and came to the conclusion that that was the appropriate uh, topic. You know, again, you can't go anywhere without hearing about artificial intelligence. But if you think about those four priorities over the last few years uh, for the um, healthcare community at Davos, AI is definitely going to make a profound impact on in all four. And
2: what are your expectations as it relates to health equity? Because I think it's something that our audience focused on quite a bit. AI's ability to impact there because I think a lot of people do still have even though it's been really popularized through the chat gpts and all the other sort of uh, generative AI platforms that we've seen rise up over the past like year 18 months it's not just oh making you know Barack Obama sing Frank Sinatra or something like that like there are real applications yeah. that can have a practical impact as it relates to health equity where do you see that impact so place.
3: I, I see that as uh, really um, helping us identify populations that truly are in need of different types of services. So AI could help us aggregate data by zip codes. It can also help us identify some of the social determinants of health that are causing some of these um, healthcare inequities and these disparities in um, in outcomes. It can help us really connect uh, better, and therefore, if you can, if you can screen. Um, and identify those people that are most at risk um, for you know and, and having um, having healthcare inequities and having these disparities and outcomes and you can do something about it mm-hmm. so just as an example at, at Hackensack Meridian we uh, we use a digital tool this is not I'm getting off AI a little bit but um, we use a digital uh, tool uh, we partner With a company called Unite Us. And um, we're able, in the last year, two, two years, we've been able to uh, screen over a million people who have come in contact with Hackett's Academia, many of them from underserved uh, communities. And um, as a result of that, we've been able to identify one or more of those social determinants of health that they have. In um, at um, high risk for, and then we've made um, 3.5 million um, referrals mm. for them to get help. So if AI can help augment um, that type of uh, digital um, registration process, um, that would be really helpful. We can get to a lot more. So the idea, if you kind of scale that up by uh, by country, I think there could be some profound impact where AI can make a um, huge impact on um, health inequities.
2: Absolutely, and not only for your organization, but of other organizations of any sort of type across the industry where Correct. you have that, they could put that into action. They can put that in action. Right. I did want to ask you a question because you haven't going to the World Economic Forum for mm-hmm. years. You're taking on this leadership position there. There has been a sort of backlash. I think it's probably due to the rise in populism that we've seen across the political sector towards the World Economic Forum. But even some of the ideas that you listed out there, the idea that like health equity has to be a priority. There is still skepticism around climate change for you as a leader to say, this is where I align myself with. And these are the things that I think do pose a grave risk in some sort of ways to, the, you know, the people that I'm caring for with my organization. What do you say to those criticisms or how do you combat that with your own leadership?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think you, you just have to get the the message out there. You know, um, you can't paint the World Economic Forum with with that broad a brush, right? I mean, I mean, there's certainly politics that, you know, are present at the World Economic Forum. And, you know, I can understand what, why there's there may be some pushback you know, in different different sectors, but you know, I think the work that we're doing in the healthcare community is uh, is something that it's hard to argue with. I mean, you know, cli- climate change. I think you know most people recognize it's mm-hmm. it's here. Maybe there's still debate about why, but um, but it's here. I mean, we're seeing you know we're seeing rising temperatures uh, around the globe. Um, that's resulting in more infectious disease prevalence, like. Like malaria, we're seeing it even in terms of higher degrees of pollution and causing asthma, things of that nature, malnutrition because of, you know, less um, ability to farm products that are necessary. So if we ignore that, where is that going to leave, you know, health and healthcare? So we have to we have to address issues like that. Health equity, like you, you're mentioning, very, very important. I mean, you know, I think I don't think anybody would argue that there's huge um, differences in outcomes, whether it's maternal child health, where, you know, African American women are um, three times more likely to die from complications of, of birth than their white counterparts. I mean, um, you know, those are those are real. Those are real numbers, real statistics, real people that are actually dying. So we need to do something about that. So I, I look at the World Economic Forum as a, a good convener for uh, for for action. And that's, that's going to be one of my focuses, too. We don't want to just talk about it and talk about the problems, but I want to come away with an action plan. So... The way the the way this governor's meeting is going to work is there's going to be um, the governors themselves will hear from industry leaders about um, AI and its uh, potential and and maybe some of the pitfalls and mm-hmm. making sure that you know we're responsible as we're as we're moving forward with AI um, you know with some of the pilots with some of the use cases and making sure that there's good governance on top of it and there's good human. Interaction along the along the way. So we'll hear from some of those industry leaders. Then we're going to bring the policymakers in. So we're going to have uh, some some health ministers that will come in from U.S., from Europe, from South America as uh, as well. Dr. Tedros, who's head of the World um, Health Organization, will be also addressing the uh, the group. And then the health ministers or, or the policymakers, if you will, will leave the room. And then the uh, governors will uh, reconvene. And we'll go into breakout sessions and talk about what we just heard from both the industry leaders and from the policymakers, come up with um, specifics around um, the potential for AI, some of the the um, guardrails that need to be put in place, and what actions can we take. Um, and we're going to follow up um, every month with this group. So it's not going to just be till next Davos that we uh, talk about this again. We're going to have some real live follow-ups um, each and every month. That's that's encouraging to hear from my end just
2: because, again, before when I was in the previous role covering the hospitals and health system sector, it seemed like, and maybe this was changed over the course of COVID, it seemed like it was very much everyone's in their own tribe or their own camp where it's like right. the insurance people don't want to talk with the providers and the farmers right. you know, over here and all this sort of stuff. And it seems like there has been this kind of coalescing or this sort of, you're, we're not so different, you and I, and right. we actually have to have an action plan that comes together, especially with something as... As consequential as AI is,
3: yeah, I, I think you know um, there has to be a good public-private partnership. I think device device uh, companies, mm-hmm. pharmaceutical companies, insurers. There's an incentive. Providers is an incentive for all of us to work together uh, and harness AI to its full potential, and to to also come together and agree on what the what the guardrail should be. What are you know where where should where should the regulations um, start? You know, we don't we we want to find that right balance. We don't want to be so over regulated That's going to stifle innovation and stifle AI development. But we also recognize that we have to do this in a responsible way. So there needs to be some regulation. So we're working as an example uh, with the uh, White House. Uh, President Biden issued an executive order on AI um some of the um, agencies are starting to formulate some regulations and we're part of the group of um, organizations uh, that are working with the uh, with the White House and developing the right guidelines no it's 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 taking that proactive measure like you said to be able to make sure things don't get out of
2: control with a technology that's as new and profound as it is. I want to ask you a couple more questions about Hagensack Meridian and kind of on the communication side, because that is our audience. But one final question about Davos, and this is my own curiosity, is what do you like to do outside of the sessions? It seems like there's a lot of skiing. I can imagine that there's very good food being Switzerland. You know, what appeals to you?
3: You know, the uh, skiing definitely appeals to me. And in previous years, I had uh, one year I had my, uh, after the meetings were over, my son flew out and we did uh, some skiing, which was really which was really cool. And I uh, had a, I had a buddy of mine that flew out another year to, to do that. Um, this year, unfortunately uh, I got to go back right after the meetings oh. have some events. So I don't know, I've, I'm hoping maybe, maybe a half a day of skiing I might be able to get in like Friday afternoon before, uh, after the sessions end and before, uh, before I have to go back, but uh, we'll have to see about that. Yeah. I mean the, you know, listen, the, the um, you know, the, the culinary experiences are, are good there. Um, you know, the wine's not bad, <laughs> just saying. <laughs> is wine ever bad? <laughs> it's never bad. And, uh, you know, they, you know Davos is also, you know, there's also, um, you know, events that are, you know, more social that happen, um, you know, late. Um, you know, we'll have to see how that, I have to balance all that because uh, the schedule this year, I looked at it, the itinerary, I mean, I start at like, you know, seven in the morning every morning. So I have to, uh, and I cannot say this, uh, you know, with a straight face anymore. I used to say sleep is overrated, but my, my clinical colleagues tell me, Bob, you can't, you can't say exactly. that. It's <laughs> true. So I, I can't, so I won't say that uh, on your podcast.
2: <laughs> yeah. You can tell yourself that, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> going back to the, the communication side, because I know that is something that would interest our audience. We've covered a couple of the campaigns that Hackensack Meridian has done. There's the no butts campaign that uh, appeals to me, obviously, just because, <laughs> and what, what a great pun. And, and obviously the work that you've done with uh, Eli Manning, you work with donor. That's the agency of record for the <laughs> organization. Curious about entrusting an agency because we do have agents folks, and they're always trying to appeal to these different healthcare brands and saying, we can take your message, we can take your mission and message accordingly. What is that like working with the agency? Because you obviously have your mission, but then you're saying, please go out into the world and articulate it appropriately.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, I I like to think we have a good story to tell and um, they help us, uh, they help us tell that uh, story. So, you know, professional organizations like, you know, like donor and others, you know, certainly are are great to, uh, to work with. There's a lot of talent, a lot of creativity. So they'll come up with some, you know, some novel ideas that maybe we didn't think about, like, you know, the the no butts campaign and <laughs> things of that nature. But, um, you know, working with folks like Eli Manning to, um, help us, uh, raise money for things like, uh, pediatric cancer research has been amazing. I mean, Eli Manning, uh, we were just, I was just talking to somebody else about this. Uh, he's been a, a, um, phenomenal, uh, partner. You know, he just doesn't lend his name to a cause, which he has in this case. He actually is there doing the work, uh, helping us raise, uh, raise important dollars. So, you know what, um, You know, when you when you have an agency that helps you get out that message, it just helps people like like Eli and the folks at Hackensack Meridian Health um, do more good things. I can say this as a Patriots fan, begrudgingly. He does seem like a nice guy. (laughs) He is a great guy. He He, seems like
2: a very nice guy. You
3: know, sorry, sorry about the Patriots this year, but again, you could say that about our Giants too. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) I was there last Sunday
2: watching them beat the Eagles, so that's that's my own uh, victory there. I wanted to kind of wrap up our conversation here. You've been so gracious with your time and and coming into our studio here in Chelsea to talk about all the work that you're doing at your organization on the global stage with uh, the World Economic Forum. As you look out to 24, obviously, I think. A lot of people that I've spoken to, certainly on the marketing and agency side, see a lot of uncertainty. Obviously, the economy didn't go full recession mode. We're looking at sort of a soft landing, but inflation is still lingering. There's concern about what the outcome of the presidential election could be. There's so many other factors at play. From your perspective, as it relates to your organization, you know what do you see ahead and how do you navigate some of
3: those obstacles? You know, I think the uh, for, for me, the macro trends in healthcare, I think, will continue even with the uncertainty of what's ahead in 2024, meaning the economy, the the election, um, I think the macro trends. Meaning, you know, certainly, um, I think innovation will continue. AI will continue to uh, be deployed in in healthcare for for good reasons. I think the trends of uh, more and more healthcare being delivered outside the four walls of the hospital that will uh, continue. I think what we look at is particularly, you know, when when it's tough economic times. Uh, we look at, um, folks that are, um, that lose their jobs and maybe lose their, uh, your health, their health insurance. And, uh, so we, you know, we need to step up even more and we need to, to, to address that and make sure people have access to, uh, to programs like Charity Care and things of that nature, so that you know that's always on our mind uh, when when there's either a recession or something near uh, a recession a downturn in the economy. So that that's something we'll we'll watch. And obviously, you know, in terms of overall healthcare policy, elections do have consequences. So mm-hmm. that is something that we'll watch. But I don't believe you know. You know um, whichever party ends off winning in, in the U.S., I, I do believe the the macro trends, like I said, in healthcare will, uh, will continue. But there'll be some, you know, micro trends, if you will, that will obviously shift uh, from um, political party to political party.
2: Yeah, especially given how partisan things seem to be on yeah. Capitol Hill with the margins and everything. So exactly. More to come on that front, as there always is. But, Bob, really appreciate you coming by our studio, offering your insights here. Always a pleasure to
3: talk to you. That was great, Jack. Thanks for having me.
4: Health Policy Update with Lesha Bouchak.
1: Pharma entrepreneur and founder of Roivant Sciences, Vivek Ramaswamy, has dropped out of the presidential race after he ranked fourth place in the Iowa caucuses. Ramaswamy, who was running for the Republican nomination, was beat in the caucuses by Nikki Haley as third and Ron DeSantis second, with Donald Trump coming in first with 20 delegates as of January 16th. After announcing he would leave the race, Ramaswamy endorsed Trump for president, according to NBC News.
4: As of this moment, we are going to suspend this presidential campaign. And this is going to have to be. There is no path for me to be the next president absent things that we don't want to see happen in this country. As I've said since the beginning, there are two America first candidates in this race. And earlier tonight, I called Donald Trump to tell him that I congratulated him on his victory. And now going forward, he will have my full endorsement for the presidency.
1: Ramaswamy, a multimillionaire, funded a large chunk of his campaign with the money he made in the pharma industry. In 2014, he founded Roy Vint Sciences with the strategy of buying up patents from big pharma companies for drugs that hadn't been developed yet and advancing them to commercialization. One of those highly watched drugs was intepirdine, which Roivant subsidiary Axovant bought up from GSK, and ended up failing in a late-stage trial in 2017. During his presidential campaign, Ramaswamy called himself a scientist, arguing that he developed a number of medicines, according to the New York Times. Aside from an undergraduate degree in biology, Ramaswamy had no scientific training and spent his career as an entrepreneur. But he also sought to brand himself as a second Trump, referring to his policy agenda as America First 2.0. The agenda largely referred to identity politics as being a, quote, scam, as reflected in his book, Woke Inc. The Republican contender also heavily pushed the idea of banning kids from using social media platforms, equating the products to addictions and calling TikTok, quote, digital fentanyl. Ramaswamy has a TikTok profile himself with more than 350,000 followers and has posted dozens of videos throughout his campaign, most recently just a few days ago discussing the upcoming Iowa caucuses. Despite campaigning against the use of social media among kids, Ramaswamy admitted in a TikTok video himself that he started a profile to reach younger voters. When it comes to abortion, Ramaswamy said he didn't support a national abortion ban, but he has called himself pro-life and said he supports six-week bans at the state level. The biotech entrepreneur also split slightly from his party's typical stance on drugs, noting that he supported the decriminalization of certain drugs like psychedelics and that he wasn't a war on drugs person. He did, however, push that he would use the military to, quote, annihilate the Mexican drug cartels if necessary. Following his defeat, Ramazwamy appears to be planning to somehow stay involved in politics. He posted on X late Monday night that, quote, This campaign is about speaking the truth. I will do everything I can to make sure Trump is the next U.S. president. I'm Lesha Boushek, senior reporter at MM MMNM.
0: And this is the part of the broadcast when we welcome back Jack O'Brien to tell us what's trending in healthcare. Hey, Jack.
2: Mark, we're going to start this segment with Christina Applegate's emotional appearance at the 75th Emmy Awards last night, where the TV icon and MS patient advocate introduced the award for supporting actress in a comedy series. Listeners will recall that Applegate was diagnosed with MS in 2021 after she began experiencing leg pain and tremors during the shooting of the last season of her show, Dead to Me. On Monday night, Applegate aided by a walking cane, made an emotional appearance at the award show, complete with her signature charm, humor, and even a nod to Ozempic. Oh my
1: God, you're totally shaming me with disability by standing up. It's fine. Okay. Um. (laughs) Body, not by Ozempic. Okay, let's go.
2: Uh. And that clip was courtesy of Fox. This was a welcome, albeit rare, showing from Applegate, who didn't make a public appearance from the time of her diagnosis until November 2022, when she attended the ceremony to receive her star in the Hollywood Walk of Fame. In February 2023, Applegate showed up to the 29th Annual Screen Actors Guild Awards with a cane that read F-U-M-S. She also walked down the red carpet barefoot and noted in a tweet that she chose to go barefoot because, quote, "...for some with MS, the feeling of shoes may hurt or make us feel off-balance." So today, I was me, barefoot. It's important to note that about 1 million people in the U.S. are living with MS, according to the National MS Society. And while the causes of MS are often uncertain, they can be triggered by autoimmune disorders, infectious viruses, genetics, or environmental factors. And I can tell both you, Mark and Lesha, that seeing her come down there with her cane, with the assistance of host Anthony Anderson, with love and marriage blasting for everybody who is a fan of married with children uh very heartwarming there and the fact that she was able to take it in in good grace had a few jokes to send off to the crowd before handing the the trophy over was a heartwarming moment if nothing else
1: yeah it's definitely um heartwarming as you mentioned jack to see her appear um at the emmy awards you know I remember reading about her being diagnosed a few years ago and sort of the the symptoms that she had been experiencing, the fact that she was walking with a cane. Um, obviously, there's always the concern that since this is a progressive disease with no real cure, um, you know, it, it's always uh, hopeful to to see her still appearing in public and, um, you know, being sort of a celebrity who isn't afraid to, you know, talk about her condition and say, I can still Do some things, even though I'm struggling Um, and I have a cane, for example. So um, definitely heartwarming to to see her there.
2: And it was one of those things, too, where she said when, you know, people kept applauding her, they applauded her when she came out there and then she had made a reference to it as a disability. And then she was quickly like, okay, we don't need to applaud every time that I say something like let's we got to keep the show moving on. Uh, Mark, I wanted to bring you into the conversation here.
0: Yeah, thanks, Jack. It you know reminds me um, of the uh, you know the fact that MS patients have long been known you know for a, a particular patient profile. You know those who aren't afraid to kind of confront their condition, um, and even you know going so far as to use certain pharmaceuticals that have known uh, risk factors, uh, like Tisabri. You know which which had a risk uh, for a rare brain infection. Um, uh, but so much so, uh, you know, did, did they kind of exemplify this fearlessness uh, that, you know, this has kind of shown up in the marketing, you know, for, for these kind of d- drugs in this kind of uh, this particular therapeutic category. And uh, emotion really is, is the spark, you know, that uh, uh, audiences most identify. That's kind of a, a, Basically, basically tenet of, of marketing. And so it, it really uh, sh- has shown up in a lot of pharmaceutical marketing and advertising. Uh, but, um, you know, especially in, in the MS category, you know, you see this uh, kind of, and, as you noted on her cane, F-U-M-S, that's can, kind of was the hallmark of, of one of the other uh, MS campaigns where, where patients were seen sticking their tongue out at the camera. Uh, but I was uh, also, you know, very uh, taken by that that video, uh, you know, of her kind of fearlessly walking down uh, across the stage, and uh, you know, again confronting her illness and uh, showing that she's not afraid of it. It's uh, it's it must be sort of uh, for people dealing with this condition and you know, kind of making making the best of it to have her, you know, kind of show that that they can do that it must must be
2: empowering. Yeah, you talk about it kind of like from the patient profile that we've seen for various campaigns. I feel like MS is always one of those where they talk, they teach you to really be out there and proud and, and live and be the face of it, whether it's you know Christina Applegate or, or uh, Ann Romney. That's one of the things that has always stuck out to me. What do you got next, Jack? I'm going to throw this one over to Lesha.
1: I'll be talking about looks maxing, a pretty big trend on TikTok that has a lot of implications for mental health and issues like body dysmorphia. Hunter eyes, prey eyes, negative and positive canthal tilt, these are all terms that may sound strange on first impression, but are well known on TikTok where they fall under the category of looks maxing. The goal of looks maxing is to be as attractive as possible, fueled by the use of beauty filters that smooth out skin, make eyes bigger and brighter, make lips plumper and make imperfections disappear. Looks maxing could mean something as simple as changing your makeup, skincare routine, or hairstyle. It could also refer to far more drastic physical changes like plastic surgery and rearranging the bone structure in your face. Now, a recent trend on TikTok related to the canthal tilt has taken off, spurring an increase in plastic surgery and triggering some backlash over its link to body dysmorphia. Canthal tilt refers to a line between the outer edges of your eyes. The outer corner of the eye is the lateral canthus and the inner corner of the eye is the medial canthus. To have a slanting or sloping up from the medial to lateral canthus is considered a positive tilt and a downward slope a negative tilt. Some TikTok videos take canthal tilt to the extreme, arguing that someone with a positive canthal tilt is attractive while a negative canthel tilt is deemed unattractive.
2: Your eye area makes or breaks you. The eye area holds a pivotal place in determining facial attractiveness. The shape, position, and the canthel tilt are crucial factors that can significantly impact a person's overall appearance.
1: Looks maxing trends like canthel tilt have sent young people flocking to plastic surgeons to change the structure of their faces, often with some of these things based entirely off misinformation. But some opponents are arguing that trends like this can be damaging to mental health and can also further body dysmorphia. Dr. Stafford Bromand, a board-certified plastic surgery in New York, says he has to educate his patients on a daily basis about how TikTok and Instagram filters and trends are unrealistic.
4: I see a lot of actors. I see a lot of people on stage, on screen. And the reality is, in person, they never look like they do on screen. And that realization is not necessarily transmitted to the general population. They think they always look that good, where in reality, they always don't look that good. And this is all makeup and filters and Photoshop. And so that's the discussion I think that needs to be had. And that's the discussion I have with my younger patients, that these people that they bring in photos or images on Instagram, they say, I want to look like this those aren't real. And so it's an ongoing discussion. You know, I I can only go through one patient at a time as they're consulting me. But to get that message out there, I think, would be important.
1: Now, Lux goes way beyond canthal tilt, but I had decided to hone in on this one as sort of an example of how ridiculous some of these trends can be. Um, obviously, whether or not you have a positive or negative canthal tilt, really, there's no, you know, scientific evidence to prove it makes you more attractive or unattractive. It's just something that's essentially misinformation being spread on the platform again. And cosmetic surgeons and plastic surgeons are, are sort of having to bridge the gap when their patients come to see them with all these ideas in their head.
2: It is one of those things and I'm going to put my hand up unless you know, Mark, I don't know my cancel tilt. I I, even when I was editing the story, I didn't know if I had a good one or a bad one. But
0: the the point I I profess to not know that either. You don't know
2: that. So we're (laughs) over three here. Um, One thing that does stand out to me, and Lesh and I were talking about this offline before we came in the studio, is the fact that. Of all of the different TikTok trends and stuff that we cover, the one that always seems to get the most in terms of action items for the people that are involved are these ones with cosmetic surgeons or plastic surgeons or whatever. Like I, I feel like other people can look at different things and it may not have the same sort of, oh, I need to go. But like you interviewed a, a plastic surgeon that's here in New York and being approached by young people. People or adolescents or young adults saying, like, oh well, I need to get this done because I saw this online, whereas that just doesn't have the same sort of effect with other sorts of, of medical professions. It must be, and I maybe I, I you know better than I do, Lesha, but it must be exhausting that sort of way for HCPs to be like, Oh my gosh, I'm just inundated with people that are getting this kind of wacky information off social media, and then I have to be the one saying, No, this isn't real or it's not not to the same extent as which you think it is.
1: Absolutely. And um, Dr. Brahman, the um, plastic surgeon I spoke with essentially said that, you know, every day this is a thing for him. Every day he's talking to patients and has to do it on an individual basis and he, there's, there's only so many patients in a day he can kind of explain this to. Um, but right now that's kind of his only way of, of getting this message across to them is when they do come to him in person with these, these ideas in their head. Um, and he has to sort of make, a, make it a personal conversation to change those perceptions that are coming from social media.
2: In addition to doing all the other stuff that he does as a doctor, which is not telling patients like, oh, that TikTok you saw is not exactly what we should be doing. Right.
0: Yeah, I wonder if they kind of welcome it in terms of, it. well, at least it's getting people talking about The issues that, that are, that I'm passionate about and, and I can at least have a conversation with people or if it's like, you know, unwanted, you know, but we, we talked about the looks, uh, maxing trend last year. I remember with, with bone smashing, Mm -hmm. we also saw it with another one of, um, Lesha's great pieces on DIY dentistry, you know, just the term, you know, gives me chills, but, uh, you know, these were all trends, as Lesha said, that gained traction last, the last year or two, you know, like it or not, TikTok is, is this health platform of choice. For Gen Z, uh, and there, you know, there's a plethora of them online, and countless uh, not only cosmetic trends but mental health trends. We're going to be, I'm sure, talking more about in the in the coming year, and uh, it's they they, they're gone from disinformation to downright dangerous, Uh, and so uh, you know you have these. Things that seemingly seem innocuous, they, 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 you know, become dangerous in the wrong hands because, you know, for every video that kind of mocks these practices, you know, it, it begs the question, how many people actually genuinely believe it? So um, it's uh, definitely an area ripe for uh, real mental health, real uh, you know, health healthcare professionals to come in and correct the misinformation. Um, and uh, we'll talk more about that, I'm, I'm sure, this year, but it was very, uh, a very provocative topic indeed. Thanks, Lesha.
2: Absolutely. Being able to talk about something that has such a, a tie in with mental health and then the body dysmorphia angle, too. I'm sure that he was just as excited to be like, okay, instead of talking to one patient at a time, I could talk to somebody that's able to get the message out there to a, a wider range of people and expand the audience. Our final story here is kind of a sad one. There is a sort of silver lining to it as it relates to Michael Strahan's daughter, Isabella, and her recent brain cancer diagnosis. Um, listeners, especially those who are here in the New York metro area with us, will remember that. As a member of the New York Giants for 15 seasons, Michael Strahan played with a relentless style that allowed him to persevere through all sorts of adversity. Now his daughter Isabella is embracing that same sort of resilient mindset in the face of a major health challenge. The 19-year-old daughter of the Pro Football Hall of Famer and Good Morning America co-host is set to undergo further treatment for medulloblastoma. This is a malignant type of brain cancer, according to our sibling publication, Cancer Therapy Advisor, that accounts for 20% of all childhood brain cancers and is most commonly presents in children between the ages of five and nine. The five-year survival rate for medulloblastoma is 72%, according to the National Cancer Institute, though many factors can affect a prognosis. In an effort to bring attention to this form of brain cancer, Isabella launched a YouTube series in partnership with Duke Children's Hospital to document her patient journey as she prepares for chemotherapy treatment next month. All proceeds from the series will benefit the Preston Robert Tisch Brain Tumor Center at Duke University Medical Center, where she is set to receive care. In the first video of the series, which is seven minutes long, Isabella brings viewers up to speed on how her care journey began and outlines her hopes of eventually getting back to life as a college student.
1: And getting back to school, I don't know, you just kind of have to, it's the whole time process, and you just have to think positively. So I am going through the same thing. Think positive, and things will get better. And I'll end with that.
2: Mark, I want to bring you into the conversation here, because obviously you and I are both football fans, neither for the New York Giants, but have always had a long respect for Michael Strahan on the playing field and obviously the impressive media career he's been able to achieve off of it. And you're a father too. I I can't even imagine the helplessness that you must feel when you see something like that, like watching the interview that he and his daughter gave with Robin Roberts and seeing her talk about this, you know, 19 years old with a pretty aggressive form of brain cancer. I, I can't even imagine what that would do to myself, let alone if I had a child that was going through that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Just absolutely heartbreaking, you know, to to think also that she was just you know, um, in the fall, you know, uh, you know, had not been dealing with any of this. And then all of a sudden she has the headaches and then she goes in and then before she knows it, she's having, you know, brain surgery, uh, I, I believe it was in October. Right. Mm-hmm. So, uh, how, how quickly life, life changes. Um, and, um, obviously when it's your own child, like my, my goodness, um, it's, uh, it's the wor- most devastating thing in the world. Um, not that I um, have any direct experience there, but, uh, you know, I can only imagine what, uh, Michael Strahan's going through. Definitely, you know, f- as, as an Eagles fan, I, I give him his props. You know, he was a terrific uh, player all those years and a terrific um, – you know, uh, competitor. Uh, and it's, it's, it's great to see his, he's passing those qualities, obviously onto his daughter, who's, you know, battling this at such a young age, showing, showing so much poise, you know, to, to be 19 and to be bearing your, your life to the world when you're going through something so public that you probably just kind of want to crawl into, into bed and just like not talk to anybody. But, you know, if it can benefit one person, you know, to either get a screening, you know, uh, pay attention to, to that headache or whatever. And, you know, and, And and go see a doctor uh, to prevent some further, you know, God forbid, tragedy like this. uh, Then then it's done some good, Um, and so you know, applause to her. And and, you know, we've seen a number of kind of celebrities, you know, kind of whether it's going in for colonoscopies or those kinds of things, trying to raise awareness for those really necessary medical screenings. I'm not sure that this lines up perfectly, you know, with uh, medulloblastoma, um, but uh, you know, it's um, it's just really impressive.
2: But even just to provide a little bit of normalcy too, like the fact that it affects normally younger children and she's 19 here, like this is even for some of her own peers. This is for younger kids to say like, you know, this is somebody that is going through something very severe and you're going to have bad days. You're going to have days where you feel like crap and the treatments are getting the best of you and everything, but you're trying to look for whatever that silver lining. I do think it's impressive too, because, you know, Michael Strahan's obviously made this indelible Mark and media, he has his own production company, and being able to say, like, we're going to put, we're going to marshal those resources, if you will, for her to be able to tell her story and to to do that for younger kids. is really admirable. Lesha, I'm just kind of curious your thoughts on, you know, being able to try and take what is obviously a very dark situation and make as good of something out of it as you can.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, we just spoke about medical information, misinformation online, but I think this is a good example of, Um, you know, there being these initiatives and people who are actually using social media to spread uh, more positive messages and accurate information. Um, I know YouTube has done a lot in the last couple years to fight misinformation, um, to crack down on videos that are misleading about health topics, and to start a lot of initiatives involved, uh, that involve part partnering with credible organizations, hospitals, um, you know, authoritative sources like that to basically develop series um, that provide accurate medical information. I think this is an example of, of that and YouTube's efforts to... To bring accurate medical information to the top, Um, especially for younger people, as you mentioned, um, Isabella is is, you know, of the younger generation and being able to have her on YouTube speaking to the younger generation, um, I'm sure is is very poignant and um, impactful.
2: Definitely. I'm sure the folks at YouTube when they saw, oh, there's a new health series that's going to launch on here and then they were able to see like, oh, this is to try and empower pediatric cancer patients instead of, you know, God knows what else is on there was probably welcome news to them. So obviously sending the best to Isabella and the Strayhand family there and we'll be, you know, tuning in to see how she documents her journey. Like we said, next month is when she starts her chemotherapy treatment in, in earnest.
0: And we look forward to seeing her you know, f- finish up that journey uh, to to good health and uh, hopefully for many years to come. Absolutely. All right. That was terrific. Thanks, Jack and Lesha. And thanks, everybody out there for joining us in this week's episode of the MMN Podcast. Be sure to listen to next week's episode. and We'll be joined by Dr. John Wigneswaran, aka Dr. Wig, Chief Medical Officer of Walmart. That's it for this week. The MMM Podcast is produced by Bill Fitzpatrick, Gordon Failer, Lesha Bushak, and Jack O'Brien. Our theme music is by Sizzy M. Sohn. Rate, review, and follow every episode wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes out every week. And be sure to check out our website, mmm-online.com, for the top news stories in pharma marketing.